This is the Education Gadfly Show. Some of these things that bring us together as Americans is like all of our children will make some kind of turkey art. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Daniel Showalter. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, Daniel is Associate Professor of Math at Eastern Mennonite University. Also joining us, my special co-host, Victoria McDougald. Victoria, welcome back. Woohoo! It's been a while. Glad it, to be here. It has been a <laughs> while. Victoria, I think, let's see, since you have last been here, well, you had another baby. That was had exciting. another child. She's four months now. Yep. Uh, it's very exciting. And David is not here because his wife just had a baby. Oh, super excited for them. Little I'm, baby James. James yes. Was it James Baxter, Baxter Griffith? Mm-hmm. The Fordham family is growing larger. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, baby and we, by baby. And uh, the Daniel's got some kids too. We're talking to Daniel by Skype and he's got some great kids artwork in the background there. Having artists in that family. Yet. Oh my goodness. You know, the turkey. I, I love, you know, some, some of these things that bring us together as Americans is like all of our children will make some kind of turkey art out of their handprint. Is that? <laughs> yeah. And the foot. You can even do the foot with the feathers. Oh, yeah, okay. I've gotten some of those too. Excellent. <laughs> no, it's so precious. Daniel, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are excited to talk to Daniel because he helped with a big report recently on rural education. Let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. All right, Daniel. So you were helping with this project or helped to write it. I believe it was called Why Rural Matters. And look, this is something, you know, I think for a long time, those of us in education reform have felt like we don't have a great answer to the challenges in rural education. There was a lot of talk about rural ed after Trump won the the election. And there was this discussion of these forgotten places like, oh, right. You know, there's a lot of places hurting out there, not just in, you know, the industrial heartland uh, and but but also in, in rural places you know at Fordham we have a charter school that we are an authorizer of that is in rural Appalachian Ohio and so that brings us there from time to time we see some of those challenges up front but enough for me you tell us what, what's the big picture here why why should we be paying attention to rural education and is it a different playbook we need for improving rural schools than we might need for other schools yeah, that's a great question, Mike. I think there are some challenges that cut across education, no matter the locale. There's certainly some that are more unique to rural education. For example, transportation. Some of these districts are very large and kids are on the bus for an hour, hour and a half each way, or a lot of the budget might be eaten up by those transportation costs. There's also issues of connectivity, especially as we do become a more internet-driven society, and, and that has ramifications for for schools that might not be able to connect as easily. So yeah, we we do see various issues. But then some of the impacts of poverty, I think we feel them just like in urban schools, perhaps in slightly different ways. But the recruitment of teachers and retention can also be issues, especially the more remote rural areas can be hard to attract and retain teachers there. So let, let's start there. I am mean, fascinated with this question around teachers because it seems like it, it can cut both ways. On, on the one hand, trying to attract teachers, col- college-educated 
graduates to these some of these tiny little places where maybe there's not lots of other people with college degrees. On the other hand, if you want to live in rural America and you have gone to college, teaching is a pretty good job, right? And you can actually, you know, the cost of living is low. And so there could be some real benefits. So especially if you're from a certain rural community and you'd like to stay or, you know, go off to college, come back and, and uh, then teaching is a pretty good option. So, I mean, I guess this question of sort of, does it help or hurt in the search for teachers to have I know a whole lot of people who live in the Washington metro area who talk all the time about how we are sick and tired of the traffic and the <laughs> stress and people being mean to each other. Your and, son included, right? Well, my, yes. And wouldn't it be nice to live someplace where people were friendly and uh, perhaps you were not you know, stressed out all the time mm-hmm. by some of those challenges of, of city living? I mean, what, I mean what, what does the evidence tell us? Is, is it legitimate to say it is just harder to recruit teachers in rural America or are there some upsides too? Yeah, I don't have the exact stats of the data, but you're exactly right that the the talk tends to center on the deficits of rural areas, whereas the tight communities, the support, the lower traffic, uh, often lower pollution, a lot of these can make it quite attractive to live in rural areas. As for the salary, that was something I was pretty curious about myself because in past reports, uh, we've seen that the rural teachers on, on average get paid paid less than than those in other locales. But like you said, the cost of living there is lower, lower also. So I didn't know if if that was most of what was going on there. So this report for the first time, uh, this is a biennial report. This report, we used a new index from the National Center for Education Statistics, and it's a comparable wage index. So it, it looks at other professions and how much they're getting paid, other outside of the teaching profession, and then uses that to adjust the teacher's salaries for any any school district in the country. So what we found with that is even after adjusting for that, uh, rural teachers on average got paid three to five thousand dollars less than their peers in in other areas. And that is, in effect, adjusting for cost of living, at exactly, least via right, the wages. Right. Okay, so there is really still a challenge there. That's interesting. The other one that you know we talk about a lot, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on it, is this question of college readiness as the goal of the education system. I mean, that's been such a big focus in education reform circles. I think we're a little better now talking about post-secondary readiness. In other words, people saying, all right, we don't actually need every kid to go to a four-year college, you know, a two-year program or even a one-year certificate program if it's in the right field and it results in a valuable credential is great too. But there's always been this talk that in, in rural America, in at least parts of rural America, there's just not a lot of jobs that you can, you know, that require a college degree. And so if you succeed in preparing kids to go off to college, then they may never come back. And depopulation's a big issue. So, I mean, what do you find? How do rural communities think about this in terms of what they are even trying to encourage their young people to do? Certainly there's a, a tension there and I've heard stories on both sides. You you often see in the research literature where despite this outmigration, the students who do leave the rural communities and succeed maybe in urban areas are considered success stories of that of that rural community. Uh, at the same time, you also have students who rebel in, in the school and some of the research that's been done on that is traced to families who don't value that college uh, or that, that track out of the 
the rural area and, and are almost antagonistic uh, towards that. So I think you see both sides of it. There was an interesting book written, Hollowing Out the Middle, and it was this idea that over time, more and more of the academically successful students in, in rural areas are going to urban areas, suburban areas, and this concept of a brain drain uh, that we sometimes hear. One of the things I've found interesting in the data is this this particular report, I looked at the National Assessment for Education progress, and I looked at scores for rural areas versus non-rural areas and, and compared them. And in 28 out of the 48 states with data, the rural areas actually outscored the non-rural areas in these educational tests. Uh, so that was helpful in illuminating some of the, the stereotypes that are out there there about the brain drain, but it, it's certainly an issue, as you mentioned. And I imagine that varies by poverty um, when you kind of break it down. Yes, absolutely. And, and in fact, it, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I was also curious about what I thought of as the poverty gap where um, so the National Assessment for Education Progress also allows us to look at um, by by poverty. So we looked in the rural areas of each state and the students living in poverty versus students not living in poverty and how big the gap was. So in, in every state, there was a gap. The students in poverty did not perform as well on the test, but that gap varied pretty dramatically. So Pennsylvania, for example, that that gap was uh, relatively small versus other areas in the country where that gap was huge between students in poverty and students not in poverty. Yeah. Now, interesting. And, and then finally, I, I do also that wonder with the college debate, how this is starting to impact with politics. Again, I'm obsessed, of course, because I live in D.C. with politics, I guess, uh, and just can't get enough of it. I mean, look, we think about rural communities. We know these are, are you know, in, in today's lexicon, very red places politically. And we also know that there's now this gap that's been opening up big time by education when it comes to politics. You know, that in general, that you see more and more highly educated people are going blue. And so it just is another one where I wonder with people who are growing up in Trump country, that if parents are worried that, wow, if my kid goes off to college, not only may they not come back to our community, they may not come back to our political tribe. You know, I might send them off to college and they're going to become Democrats, you know, and in a way that, again, we haven't exactly seen before. I mean, there's always been this, I guess, for, for many years, going back to the 60s, this worry that the campuses were liberal and that, you know, kids were going to go off and get a big dose of, of that ideology. But still, up until fairly recently, the parties were more separated by, you know, income and things like that than in, and by race than by education. But now you've got this education gap opening up too. I just, I just wonder if that even feeds even more of this antagonism towards college and college readiness. And how rural schools, how do, you, how do you handle that? How do you think about you know both preaching this message to young people that, look, in today's economy, some post-secondary is going to be important if you're going to want to have a chance at a decent paying job. On the other hand, you know, we don't want to make it feel like you are having to somehow reject your community or, you know, the, your family, et cetera. Anyways, that was my long soliloquy on that. <laughs> Either of you, uh, any, any thoughts about that? Maybe just one point. To, you mentioned that there are other options beyond college, and you were kind of curious at how that's playing out. And also in the report, we don't 
cover that. We did have a, a section on uh, kind of college readiness indicators, uh, but not one on career readiness indicators. And to be honest, that's really just due to a lack of data available. So in order to include it in the report, we have to have a national data that we can break down by state and by locale. And it should be somewhat consistent. So because career technical trainings, a lot of these differ pretty widely from state to state. That's been a barrier to including including that in the report in the same way that we include some of the other indicators. However, I, I work with the Rural Trust for this report, and I know that they would certainly want whatever they would want every rural student to be prepared to do whatever the student and their family would want to do to, to make that choice on their own. And we do generally know, though, that isn't fair to say that rural high schools are going to be more likely to have a robust career and technical education offerings maybe than than other high schools. I mean, it, it just seems like that historically it's been more popular and accepted and even encouraged in rural communities to do CTE. Right. And in Daniel's report, they talk a lot about how dual enrollment is more common in the rural schools yeah. versus the AP programs, yeah. which is interesting. And we actually, we just had an AP event last week where Trevor Packer, who heads up AP at the college board, was on our panel. And he yeah. had an interesting comment about just the uncracked nut of succeeding in AP um, in rural areas where yeah. we have recently gotten more kids to take these yeah. classes, but they're just not passing the exams at the same rates. And why is that? I think the challenges for a lot of the online classes, for example, yeah. but yeah, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, for the report, we look at these 25 different indicators that are all giving us some kind of feel for what the health is of rural education. And then what I like to do kind of as a data nerd thing at the the end of it, I've, I've got these 25 indicators and I like to just run correlations across all of them to see what things are related, what things help predict other. And this time around, uh, the highest correlator out of, of every everything there was AP pass rates. And the thing that was correlating with it was this new indicator about the wealth of a community around the schools. So there's been this, this push to measure poverty more, more accurately than just free and reduced lunches. And this new thing that's come out by the National Center for Education Statistics is they, they look at the 25 households with children nearest to every school in the country. And then they look at the incomes um, relative to how many kids they have in the household and, and what that income falls relative to the poverty line. And that, that indicator, so we looked at that for rural schools across the country, was the best predictor of AP pass rates. So the, the higher the wealth, uh, the higher the pass rates. All right. Well, so much more to check out. Again, why rural matters and such an important topic, Daniel. Thank you for coming on the show, and I hope you have a great holiday. Nice. With you and yours. Happy All right. holidays. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You know, this is our last show of 2019. Wow, Can you believe it? It's a quick wow. year. So, what was it really? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that they say as we get older every year is a yes. smaller percentage yes. of our life. And so it really does feel like yes. it goes faster. Especially we have you know. big birthdays coming up. Not that it's oh, about me, but... Amber, say. is that right? <laughs> and when you have little, little kids, uh, the days drag on, but then the years fly by. Yes. Right. Yeah, right. I'm with you. Yes. That's Indeed. what they say. Uh, I guess we can 
say this is the last chance for this research minute to be one of the best of the year because ah. when we come back from a little break, you'll yep. have to be do the, the top, the top five. research minutes. Yep. Yep. I usually do a little and recap right. and then y'all tell me I'll pick the wrong ones uh-huh. or why'd you do that? And <laughs> All right. we have a little discussion about whether they really were the best yeah. five stuff. Well, it's like yep. the Academy Awards. Do, do we do the best ones here <laughs> during award season? So will this one have a, a shot at right. making it the in? Right. What you got? We'll see. It's a new study out in the AFP journal. You guys know I'm always looking at that journal. Uh, it exams the effects of mass layoffs on post-secondary enrollment and the choice of the program of study that kids pursue. So we know that displaced workers make various good or bad choices. There's a there's some sort of depressing literature now on layoffs and, you know, opioid addiction and all this terrible stuff. Uh, but anyway, uh, we actually know a lot less about downturns in local labor markets and how displaced workers respond. Okay. Mm-hmm. This one's looking at community college enrollment specifically. And again, what program of study that some of these programs are pursued. Mass layoffs is a much better indicator than employment rate. They have this long discussion in the paper about why it's just a much better way to think about um, these decisions and, and the impacts on the labor. Market. They use monthly reports on layoffs compiled between 1996 and 2013 from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Specifically, they're looking at claims for unemployment insurance filed by workers. BLS defines a mass layoff event when more than 40 workers file claims against a single establishment within a five-week period. Mm. And then they determine whether workers experienced a layoff of at least 31 days. So that's the definition of a layoff. Analysts calculate the number of workers in a county who were involved in this mass layoff by year, then aggregate those data to the commuting zone level. Mm which was a lot of work, mm-hmm. um, but that better approximate the true physical boundaries of a local economy, right? Mm-hmm. Like how far you can travel. Mm-hmm. Um, they use data on college enrollment and degree receipt from iPads. That's this federal post-secondary database, which also apparently has better data on community college than for-profit college. So got to just keep that in mind. Mm. They focus on associate's degrees and certificates, both short-term and long-term certificates. Mm. Uh, they control for long-range changes in economic conditions and commuting zones that might lead workers to obtain training before the layoff. So they're trying to make sure it really was the shock to the system. Mm. And then they also control for long-term patterns and enrollment and degree receipt that might take care of demographic changes, for instance, um, in a certain area. All right. Results. They find that on average, two-year college enrollment increases by three students within three years for every 100 workers laid off. That's the kind of way they operationalize the finding. That's it? Three students (laughs) within three years. For every 100 workers laid off. Yes. Think about it another way. They said that rise of enrollment actually accounts for half of the observed increase in labor force non-participation following a mass layoff. Uh, in addition, eventual degree receipt increases by two students over that same period. They repeat the same analysis for four-year college enrollment and bachelor's degrees, and they find non-significant results. Mm-hmm. So we're not seeing the change there. Uh, Next, they find that completions in career tech programs also increase, especially in short-term certificates. And that varies by field. For instance, there are significant increases in the construction and manufacturing fields following layoffs. Mm. And at first you think, well, manufacturing is supposed to be declining. They make the point that these workers are also, since they're most likely impact, they're also most likely to try to seek better training and additional Mm -hmm. skills. They also find particularly strong effects for short-term certificates and allied health. Mm -hmm. So that's all those medical assistant folks of all these different varieties. Short-term certificates and allied health grew by about 0.06% in the first year following a 1% increase in layoffs. And for IT, growth is concentrated in associate's degrees completion. So I guess that takes a little bit more. 
mm-hmm. more education. Next, they find that the effect on completion is generally strongest in the fields of studies with the larger earnings potential. So there is a signal there where students and displaced workers are, are trying to get more money. Finally, they look at whether the Great Recession in 2007 had an outsized impact on their findings. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't find that. But they hypothesize that maybe it's because iPads doesn't capture these online degrees and community college funding was down. So maybe that had something to do with it. It's a lot of stuff. But all in all, I think it was fairly good news for if you got to have an economic downturn. (laughs) Like There's some good news here. Um, It might not blow your socks off. But yeah, I mean, and. Uh, they have also discussion of community colleges and whether they're being most responsive when we have these downturns and how they could be doing better. All right. So the good news is, is what? That some people go back to school. school. Right. That's right. But it's fair to say it's not that many people. Well, it's it's half, right? I mean, I don't like know what half it, of half the, of the um, um, non-participation in the labor force following a mass layoff. Okay. So most people go find another job. Right. And then, and then, or, or not, right. Or we don't know, or they're, they're not going in well, back into labor. Well, that would be it. They'd be the non-participation. Non-participation. Mm-hmm. So like, let's say, you know, for every 100 people, it sounds like three go back to school, three play video games. Right. And the rest go get some kind of job. job. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And That's right. right. And I, again, I don't know, is this good news, bad news? I mean, I guess the question would be probably most people would like to just go find another job. I mean, I guess you can't. Well, it seems a little more rosy than our CTE finding, <laughs> our study that we found where, you know, when kids are doing CTE studies at the high school level, mm-hmm. those courses are not actually well matched to opportunities and well-paying opportunities in the local labor market. Right, right. And here it sounds like they are actually gaining some sort of knowledge that will lead them to a more lucrative career right. when they I mean, that's exit. Right. That's so right. I'll be yeah, the I mean, Pollyanna here and there's Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess there's not earnings data, you know, for for the people who go get another job, right? Are you yeah. getting one that pays half the salary that you had? Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't know that. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe they'd rather just uh, get another job. But the good news is again that, well, not only they're going back to school, but you're saying that sounds like they might be choosing some pretty good. More lucrative they're, they're, they're making good decisions right. about that's what, right. what to go And back. they're completing, which we know is, I'm glad they looked at completion actually, because mm-hmm. we know that's really a problem for community colleges overall. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I mean, they're completing the more gravitating to the short term, the less than a year mm-hmm. certificates. Mm-hmm. So they, something they can get quick and dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not, well, who knows if it's dirty, but anyway, you get my point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seems to me like, I mean, that's a wise decision, right? Like, oh, you yeah. lose a job. So go back and get a short-term certificate, increase your skills, make a little more money. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't think it's going to be one of our best studies of the year. No, That's all I'm I, saying. Wasn't, I'm just saying. Was it trying? Little... <laughs> Real talk here from Fordham. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I just feel bad. These, it sounds like they put so much effort into all these different data yeah, sets. It was and in the end, you're like, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. But this is why, you know, we've got to publish our, our findings, even uh, when they're not as outsized or, and rosy as you think. That's True. This is the publication bias we talk about. Yes, that's true. All <laughs> right. Well, very good. Well, so much to cover in the new yes, year, right? Yes, hey, indeed. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of this about you know long-term outcomes. That that has been a big trend in recent years, right? Yes. Everybody wants mm-hmm. to know what's going to happen to uh, people out in the real world. Yes. Be, that'd be great. Yes, and one of our EAPs, uh, we always like to do a shout out when it's one of our EAPs still in a study. That's Emerging Education Scholars. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and this was Daniel... Makeout Growth. Makeout. Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah. I got that wrong, but... Shout out to you. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for 
this week and for this year. Again, we will be taking a holiday break, as will most of you. We expect we will be back in January. So until then, I'm Victoria McDougall. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org. 